Tonight we continue in Revelation. We are in chapter 13, the last section of that. Last week in chapter 13, verses 1 through 10, we saw the beast rising from the sea. This week, and, and by the way, we said about that beast that he represents Satan-inspired government tyranny against God and his people, his word, his commands, all those things, that antichrist system. And this week, we will see a second beast rising up on the earth. So the first beast came out of the sea, and now the second vision sees a beast coming out, uh, uh, up from upon the earth. And this beast we're going to see tonight represents the propagandist system that encourages people to pledge total allegiance to the first beast. It's kind of a, uh, as we'll see, a false prophet for that first beast, uh, kind of a cheerleader, religious prophet, if you will, drawing attention uh, and, and just propagandist uh, uh, ideas and, and speech and worship toward the beast. So let's read a description of verses 11 and 12 to get us started here of this beast on the land. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all authority of the first beast in its presence, or, or literally in his stead, or, or for him. And it makes the, the earth its inhabitants, uh, it makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. So again, as I mentioned, this second beast represents Satan's false prophet, if you will. Um, this prophet is out, again, proclaiming, figuratively proclaiming to people, hey, worship this beast. You need to follow his ideas. You need to see how good this ideology really is. I like what J. Ramsey Michael says. He says this, the relationship between the two beasts is like that between the state and the state church. The beast from the sea is a secular political power, while the beast from the earth is a religious institution fostering worship of the first beast. So again, without going into great uh, historical ideas about this, that uh, the Pope is the beast and, or the, you know, and the, the Roman church is the Antichrist, all that, we're not going to jump into those type systems. But I think the similarity and the symbolism is very plain. You have this system that we saw last week, without a doubt, if you compare to Daniel chapter 7, we see that same beast, which represented nations and kingdoms and earthly power that ruled over the people. And now we see this other beast that will represent, we'll see a, a religious tone to that. that goes hand in hand with that. And I, I like this, the, Michael's analogy there. You have the state, which again is empowered by satanic forces to be anti-Christ, and then you have this kind of a religious backup to that, which would represent a state church or a church that is sympathetic. Now, having said that, this religion, this, what is religion? Let's just look at that real quick. How do I get this religious tone out of this text? The definition of religion we have to understand first. Religion in its simplest form can be defined this way, a system of beliefs held to with intensity and faith. Do you hear that? Such a simple definition, but that's really what religion is in, at its core. It is a system of beliefs held to with intensity and faith. That doesn't mean necessarily that it has anything to do with the God of the universe, the creator, the sustainer, Yahweh. True religion, true religion 
yes, calls for an intense commitment to Christ and his commands. That, that, you see, that, that's what religion is. Re religion for the Christian is our zeal, our commitment, our action, our devotion toward God. So that's when religion is a good thing. But false religion calls for an intense commitment to the world and its ideologies and its antichrist system. So do you, do you begin to see this? I want, I want to continue to build this so we do see this because I think it's very blatant in, in our world today, this idea that religion is all around us, folks. <laughs> religion. Mankind is religious by nature. You're going to worship something. You're going to be devout about something. You're going to be passionate about something. You're going to commit to something. That's what religion is at its base. Notice the examples that we could see here of false religion of the beast. Steve Wilmshurst puts it like this. We see this false beast represented in the communism of, Soviet, of the Soviet Union with its spectacular parades through Red Square, its party card for the privileged. He, the beast, is Nazism with its Nuremberg rallies and its Hitler youth. He is the statue of Saddam, which infested Iraq, and the wall posters of Chairman Mao. And we could go on, but you, we see these representations throughout history of, of this kind of a beast that rises up, and people are just committed to, to these things. I mean, just think for a moment of Nazi Germany. We look at, back at that and we think, how could anybody ever be committed? But the, not, the German people... They bought the propaganda of the false prophet. You see what I'm saying? They, they heard the idea of a, a better nation, um, safer uh, nation, laws, and so forth, that if you, if you bought into the system, right, that, that it's going to be a better world for you, and people bought into that. And they were blinded for years to the atrocities and to the real purpose that Hitler had for conquering basically the world. And the same is true for Chairman Mao and, and, and on and on we could go with different, different worldly systems that people buy into and with all the fervor and good intentions you can imagine, right? That's what religion is. And I would say that we would add to that list today in our world things like a biased media in America that, that paints a sterile picture of abortion and covers up the horrors that millions of women endure as a result of the emotional and physical pain that is a result of that act. You see what I'm saying? I mean, what I'm saying is there's a propaganda going on where we're told this is a, it's a convenient act, it's good for you, if you, you know, it'll, it'll, it'll fix your, quote, problem, simple and fast. It's a propaganda. And, and people buy into that false prophet's message and they follow the antichrist message of the world and yet what was promised to bring great relief and a quick fix is years of remorse sometimes physical problems emotional stress it's real that this is this is the real horrors of these things that are painted as being perfectly safe and fine and you're right <laughs> you're right it's your, quote, God-given right to take the life of your baby for your sake. What about this? It's a society. This is what a false prophet is that I think we can combine here to, to, to Revelation. It's a society that, 
unceasingly, rather, unceasingly promotes sexual immorality, sexual perversion. It, it unceasingly and unashamedly promotes and encourages young people to have life-altering surgery, gender um, um, transitional reassignment surgeries as if it's, it's nothing. It's just the way of life. This is, this is what you do. It's in the name of your self-identification. Just do this and, and you'll be happy. And it's amazing because here's the truth about that. I'm, I'm not, and again, I hope you see my drift about we as Christians, we can preach against these things, but the people that are falling for this, in a sense, doing this, yes, we're all sinners. We all make choices. We're accountable. There's the responsibility involved, yes. But there is also a false prophet preaching lies, false propaganda, blinding the eyes of people. And people are victims in that sense of the sinful antichrist nature of this world. And so we are brokenhearted for those who fall for the lies of Satan, looking for hope, looking for peace, looking for real identity. We should be brokenhearted about that because our true identity, we know, can only be found in one place. That's in the one who made us. <laughs> and nonetheless, though, what I'm saying here is, is we, 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 we have to see it. We have to at least be able to call it and say this world is controlled by demonic forces and there is a propaganda going on. Here's what I mean by that. Years ago, in, in the, the, the DSM-5, which is the, the, the psychological manual of diagnosis, dysphoria, it was called gender dysphoria. It's been changed now because it had a stigma attached to it, but it was known as, as, as gender dysphoria. And it was very rare, very rare among girls. I mean, it was like 0.02%. And with boys, it was like 0.014%, something like that. It was very, very rare. And yet, there's been an over 4,000% increase in the last three years. In England, they reported that, 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 that thousands of percents increase in girls. And we see it in America. It's, it's like a thing to do now. And it's, there's, there's non-Christian doctors who have studied this and written books on this, admitting and saying you can't deny the evidence that this is basically a social media phenomenon, powered by social media, powered by peer pressure. We could say powered by propaganda, and yes, the propaganda of a false prophet. It's, it's exponentially grown because it's being promoted. And again, here's, here's that media that I'm talking about. Here's this, this system that I'm talking about. Not only is it it's, it's ceaselessly, cease, unceasingly pushing for these things that are anti-moral, anti-God, it also never misses the opportunity <laughs> to malign, misrepresent, and silence Christians. To make fools of to belittle Christians, and especially the Word of God we believe in. So this is where we're at. And, and I think we, we can lick our wounds and say, wow, we've, this is awful. Woe is me, you know. Or we can admit and understand that this is history. This is history. This is just history. It's been this way since the beginning. Since Adam and Eve sinned, 
mankind has had this antichrist attitude and been influenced by the dragon who we have seen already in revelation has always been active always trying to go against the woman and her seed her child and then the people who follow that child and he will continue to do that until the final day when christ returns as we read tonight in revelation 19 victorious once for all defeating the enemy and setting up his new kingdom that's what the Bible tells us. That's what Revelation tells us. That's what this book was written for. So I just wanted to bring it right home to show us that we're not living in really that strange of a time. It's always been. But look at this. Notice some more about this, this false prophet. He looks like Jesus a little bit. And we saw that last week, that Satan counterfeits, right? He, he is like the, the antithesis of Christ, anti-Christ, right? So look at this, verse 11. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb. So the lamb, there's the play here, right? Who are the two main contenders in the book of Revelation? The lamb of God and the dragon, right? The dragon representing Satan himself and the lamb of God, Christ, God's son. But look at the difference here. I saw, or it had rather two horns like a lamb, yet spoke like a dragon. So what is this a picture of again? John is receiving a revelation from Christ that gives a warning to the church to be vigilant, to realize that not everybody who says, I am a fan of Jesus is. Not everybody who says, I'm a Bible teacher is. Not everybody who says, I'm a Christian is this is the wolf in sheep's clothing that jesus warned us about matthew 7 15 beware of false prophets so again just to show you again revelation doesn't use totally foreign language like we've been a kind of a, you know a, ingrained with this idea that Revelation is some foreign book out of all the books of the Bible. It's a different book. It has to be looked at totally different. It's, it, it doesn't relate to anything else. It's all future, all the time, and you, you're only going to be able to interpret it if you have CNN or Fox News. But we see and have seen already through the first 13 chapters that it is very much like the rest of the Bible. The same language is used. The same visions are used that we see in the Old Testament, Daniel, Isaiah. They're the same, same language that God uses in Revelation. Here we see this, this wolf in sheep's clothing analogy, uh, analogy. And we even see the false prophet back that Jesus mentioned in Matthew 7, 15. Jesus said there'll be false prophets. And in Revelation, we're having a false prophet described to us. When we, when we get on up to chapter 14 and 15, we'll see that false prophet named as the false prophet. That beast will be called a false prophet. That's in line with the rest of the Bible. So this is not new revelation for us. It's just reaffirming God's revelation to his church that there will be persecution, that there will be antichrist, there will be, there will be suffering, there will be dying, but there will be ultimate victory when the Lamb of God returns. That's the hope. That's what this book in the, and the whole Bible is about. So as we look at that now, knowing that, okay, Jesus has always warned us about false prophets. Now in Revelation, he is simply telling his church again, yes, it's, it's still there. That beast, the false prophet, 
they're still there. Revelation 13, his deceitful works, his wonders, his miracles. Look at this, beginning in verse 13. It, the beast, the second beast, the, the false prophet, performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. Satan mimics everything God has done. This is the, a throwback to Elijah who prayed down fire from heaven. Just like Moses and the miracles that God allowed him to do, Pharaoh's, Egyptian, or Pharaoh's magicians, they were, they were Egyptian magicians, but they mocked it. They did the same kind of miracles many times, showing again that Satan counterfeits what God does. So this beast performs great signs, even making fire fall from heaven uh, to earth in front of the people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. So again, this, this crazy picture here. If this is real, like I guess, you know, some, I grew up taking it literal that there's going to come a time where there's going to be a big statue made of the beast and then the, the false prophet's going to give it power and that beast, that statue's going to start walking and talking and that could happen. It's going to be pretty wild. But even at this, we see what the false beast does, the false prophet, rather. He breathes. He, he gives life, in a sense, to the beast. He speaks words for him. Again, that's what propaganda is, right? It, this, this religious type of figure is moving a spirit around the world. He's, he's causing people to have the spirit to worship Antichrist. So, so he puts words out there for us. He gives ideology for us. He speaks, in a sense, gives language to the ideas of the dragon that are antithetical to God and his ideas. He gives, he gives breath to it, kind of gives life to Satan's agenda. That's basically what we're seeing here. And then he says this, it gets so, and I do believe, I believe with my eschatology that it does progress to kind of a fever pitch, if you will, until finally Christ does return at that moment. But, I, but what I'm saying is we're seeing it more and more where this ideology is being accepted, this message is being louder than, being megaphoned in a sense, louder than it has been, I, I will agree, it's worldwide now. I've never seen that. I've never seen every nation on earth practically agree in some of the immoral things that we're seeing, kind of a, a holding hands across the ocean to say, yes, these things that God hates, we all say is good. So, so much so that this, this is going to be the way of the land so much so that people are called to worship it. Literally almost, again, this is religious language, right? Have religious zeal for something. So dedicated to it. Fight over it. Get on Facebook and defend it. Be an apologist for it. That's religious talk. And those who don't give in totally to the ideology of the false prophet and the beast and the antichrist 
the dragon's view, as opposed to God's view, will be slain. That's what it says. We've seen this already in Revelation, the martyrs. We've seen those who die because of their faith in Christ. Look what uh, G.K. Beale says about this. This idea of these miracles and signs that the evil one can do to deceive people into almost religiously following him. It says this, various pseudo-magical tricks, including ventriloquism, ventrilo- it's easy for you to say, ventriloquism, you know what I'm saying, false lightning, and other such phenomena were effectively used in the temples of John's time. So if you go historically back to the time of, of the writing of this, 98 uh, AD in Asia Minor, the churches there in Asia, were, would have understood this because there were many false signs and wonders being done in the pagan temples. Ventriloquism. I want to say that so bad tonight. A ventriloquist. There you go. They were people that literally faked out the people for money, for them to worship their false gods, whether it be lightning and explosions and all that. Craig Keener, another uh, uh, ancient scholar, cites ancient church sources who tell of uh, uh, moving statues, fireball explosions, and statues that appear to speak. So again, this is something that John's readers would understand right away. Oh yeah, yeah, there are these, these things going on. And they may not always be hucksters. They may not always be magi- magical tricks because Satan and his demons are supernatural. And there is a supernatural batter, battle. And there is a spiritual warfare going on. So some of these things can be supernaturally charged. That's why we have to try the spirits to see if they be of God or not. So, so again, the, 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 if we bring it to our day, Satan really doesn't have to do these magic tricks with a, with a speaking idol, like some idol. We don't set idols up in America like they did back, back then. He doesn't have to fake us out with some explosion in the sky. You know what it is today? The advancements of science and the achievements of government are hailed as proof of the power of the false gospel of secular humanism, right? The false gospel of secular humanism praises governmental achievements. And the biggest one now is what? Scientific knowledge. (laughs) Science is truly the god of our day. It is the false religion of our day. Think about this. In our day, the power of the expert outweighs the credibility of the power of God's word by far with most people. If somebody says, I'm a scientific expert, listen to me. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but the Bible says, oh, get out of here with that antiquated book, you silly. Science has risen to a higher level now. We know that that's all just wives' tales. That's just superstition. Science is God. How... How can we not see this? It's just there, right? Listen to these phrases. Believe the science. Trust the science. Did we hear these statements? That's religion. That is the religion. They're asking you to have faith in something. Now, I am not, by the way, before, before we go too much further on this rant, I'm not against science. Do you realize this, folks? True science never contradicts the word of God. Most of the greatest scientific inventions of of the past 
millennia, I would say, were brought about by believing scientists, those who believed there was a God who created the world and were trying to unlock what he had done to give him glory. So true science never contradicts the word of God, but what we have today is pseudoscience. Science is not a proclamation, folks. Science is repeatable, observable experimentation. You do something over and over, you see the results, and it's fact. That's science. That never, ever will contradict God or his laws or his word. But what we have today is the proclamation, not the practice of science, but the proclamation of science. We have somebody getting on television and telling us, this is the science, believe it. Why? Because we're telling you this is the science. So there's our problem. Now, I don't, that's my rant on that, and I hope we can see it. That's the religion. That's the, there, there, there's the picture today of what John is talking about, the false prophet in our world telling us, follow the beast. Follow this antichrist message. It's all about you. It's all about humanity. It's all about the power of mankind to rise above. He's in control. Man is in control of his destiny. You don't believe, you don't need to believe in some God you can't see, in some book that's outdated. Just believe the prophet of modern religion, science, and government, and man's achievements. So he persecutes, right? That's what it said in verse 15. The last part of that, it said, and, and it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast. So he's speaking for this system so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image to be slain. So, so what I'm trying to say tonight is, as, as we've gathered here, this little humble group of people who've been saved by God's grace, that's our only claim to anything. We are what we are by the grace of God, as Paul said. And we're trusting him by faith. He's given us the faith. Is it not evident that with Christians in this society with such a strong false prophet in our ears, such a world religion that is accepted by the, the majority and pushed to us through media and movies and superstars every day, why in the world are any of us in this church building tonight and say, we believe that book? We believe that God that we can't see. We believe in a, in, in a Savior named Jesus Christ who died 2,000 years ago and rose again for us. And we believe that he is coming again. Why are any of us in here saying we believe that? It's not us. That's the evidence that his Spirit has awakened us, that we have been regenerated, that we have been saved by his grace through the gospel. That voice, again, that I preached about a few weeks ago in Romans, that whispering in our ear, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. We feel the tug of the anchor that is settled in heaven forever. I mean, it's anchored there in our destination, and Christ is gently pulling us home. That is why we're here, His grace. And even as I preach this word, there'll be two responses. Some people will laugh and say, that's crazy. But others will hear the same word of God and through the power of the Spirit be almost raptured out of here tonight. You're, you're going to be encouraged. You're going to be built up, sustained by the power of God's word. So I think this is important. Re Revelation 2.13 said this, 
I just want to, I just want to remind us, we're not going to read that, but remember in Revelation 2, we, we saw that a Christian in the church of Pergamum named Antipas was slain for his faith, it said. Basically what was going on there, and, and again, this is how it applies to Asia Minor of 2,000 years ago and to West Hill, Western Hills now in 2020, whatever year this is, 2022. As those local officials there in, in Ephesus and Asia, these were like, these little officials were like pawns of Caesar, right? Rome had the authority, but they wanted to please Caesar with everything they had. They lived for approval. They lived for power, greed. So they would do anything they could to please Caesar. And what pleased Caesar was persecuting Christians. Those who would not name him as Lord of Lords, but they named this other guy, Jesus, Lord of Lords. And these little pawns in the hands of Caesar would persecute and arrest and lock up and destroy churches. And they would they'd be, you know, rewarded by Caesar, by the emperor. So they became more and more violent because they had government sanction now. It was approved to shut those Christians up. Everybody was on board. I mean, those Christians, man, they're really cramping our style. They're not doing what we'd like them to do in our modern religion. And so they would continue to be violent. And so I think this is what we have to expect. This is why I think Revelation is such a great book for us. It's truth and it's encouraging. It's truth in that we, who do we think we are? Are we so much higher than the Christians of 2,000 years ago? Are we worthy of so much more protection by God than they were? No, we are the same sinners saved by the same grace and called to suffer the same ways. That's what Revelation is showing us. This is what Jesus revealed to John. Especially last week in verse, t- uh, verse 10. I, w- I just want to reread that one. Remember last week? We ended with verse 10. Remember what it said? It said, if anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. And we think, wow, what? What is God saying there? He's, he's, he's saying this is, this, is, this is your lot as Christians. You obey me and you're faithful to me by proclaiming the gospel. But if that government power that I have allowed to be in power and I am allowing the dragon to use them to persecute you, if they arrest you and put you in captivity, then to captivity you go. That's how you obey me. You don't give in and say, no, 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 okay, I'll denounce Jesus. I'll stop uh, preaching Jesus Christ. Oh, our church will start doing um, homosexual weddings. Uh, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll affirm transgenderism. Okay, whatever you need. So instead of mounting a revolution and going after physically getting our guns and going up to the Capitol and taking it over and bringing that kind of revolution, that's not what Christians are to do. We're to lovingly, gently, peaceably, and boldly continue to preach the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And as we're doing that, if the government officials come and say, you can't do that anymore, we respectfully tell them, I must obey God rather than man. And it's at that point 
That if we must go to captivity, then to captivity we must go. And if we must die by the sword, then by the sword we must be slain. I think it's interesting that we have had this battle in Christianity for centuries about what is the, the rate of passivity versus aggression in the Christian. What is, how do we, where do we draw the line of concealed carry to protect my family? Or where do we say, oh no, we're, we're going to go ahead and peaceably lay down for the cause of Christ here. I mean, where, where, is, where is that? And I think that's what we're seeing in Revelation here. The greatest boldness for the Christian, again, is not bodily returning evil for evil. It is when we obey our God to the max, at risk of life and limb. We don't care anymore. We'll willingly die for the cause of Christ, but we won't do it in an angry, militant way. I think it's interesting to think about back in Nazi Germany. Again, I, I have there's just so many great examples here, but you have Bonhoeffer that we talked about, but I want to mention some other guys that you may not know. These were Christians who were actually German officers. In 1944, General uh, Treskow and Colonel Stauffenberg were two key figures in the most successful, almost successful, but the, mo the one that came closest to actually assassinating Hitler. And what happened was Stauffenberg placed a briefcase. They had a meeting happening, and Stauffenberg, being, being a, a colonel, actually had a brief, briefcase bomb, and he placed it at the very feet of Hitler. At the table where Hitler was sitting, he placed this briefcase just, I mean, right at the feet of where Hitler would be sitting. He left the room, and an aide, a, a, a junior official, came in, saw the briefcase, and decided to move it to the other side of the table, randomly. Everybody gathered. Hitler was in the same seat, his, his seat, original seat. The bomb went off, but the table was so massive, wood, <laughs> it actually saved Hitler's life. Now, these guys could have been pretty distraught. They're Christians, and it looks like God is actually thwarting their plans to get rid of this earthly devil, right, in, in their minds. In their minds, I'm sure they felt like, hey, we're doing the kingdom of God a great service here. We're going we're gonna to fight evil with evil, right? Hitler's killing people. We're going to kill Hitler. He's, he's using violence and deceit, lying and all these things. We're going to lie. I'm going I'm to be deceitful. I'm going to get on his good side. I'm going to walk into the media. I'm going to put a briefcase. It's going to bomb. It's going to kill him. And yet it seems like, wait a minute. It's almost like God supernaturally intervened there, right? Somebody walks in randomly, moves that briefcase, and boom, Hitler lives. What's that? I think it's this. These guys die later on. These guys die months, months later. But they actually do die preaching the gospel. I mean, they actually die because they're preaching Christ. That honored God more, my friends, as I'm saying, than if they would have blown Hitler up with that briefcase. God takes care of the Hitlers. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. I was telling somebody today that was, was hurt over a past wrong done to them. And, and, and I just mentioned, I said, you know what? We have to trust the, the justice of God more than our justice. We have to trust the righteousness of God, the justice of God, the vengeance of God more than our vengeance and, and justice. And that takes faith. But, but again, I hope you're understanding what I'm saying through this, right? Uh, Jesus said, what did Jesus say? Ah, that's what he said. Plant a briefcase bomb at the feet of your enemies. That's what he said. No, he said, love your enemies. 
Oh, I know what he said. He said, be deceitful and scheme and plan how to destroy those people who hurt you. No. He said, pray for those who despitefully hurt you and use you. Right? I mean, now, it sounds passive, but here it is. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, Paul said, but spiritual. And the greatest weapon we have is the gospel. That's what's going to pierce through the very stony heart of a sinner and transform them. Take away all their defenses and capture them for the kingdom of God. That's what we're called to do, to proclaim Christ. And if the enemy says, we will kill you if you open your mouth about Christ, we still open our mouth about Christ. Do you see what I'm saying? That's how we honorably, boldly, and faithfully serve our king in a world inundated by the beast, his false prophet, the dragon, the enemy that is always trying to destroy us, knowing in the back of our mind, the book of Revelation, what does it say? In the end, you persevere. Doesn't matter if you die by the sword. Doesn't matter if you're locked away for years in prison and rot to death. You will one day rule the universe with me. Nothing can take away that peace. That's what Revelation's about. Okay, gotta hurry. Sorry, folks. Got another hour to this sermon. You ready? It's raining outside. Where else are you gonna go? Kidding, kidding, kidding. But let's look at this as we move on, how, how, how the beast will cause everyone to worship and for all of mankind to take a mark. This is kind of where we're going to end, but obviously the chapter ends here. So let's read those verses 16 through 18. He said, also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Everybody that I, well, not everybody, but many, many theologians, they skip that part about this calls for wisdom. <laughs> and they go into tirades about arguing about what is the mark of the beast? Rah, rah, relax. Let's take some wisdom. Let's be patient. Let's look at this. He goes on to say this. I lost my place. Hold on. Let's just start it over. Okay, yeah. To be marked on the right hand and forehead so that no one can buy or sell as he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its, its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast for it is the number of a man and his number is 666. Where I would read and, and translate this would simply be it is the number of man which is 666, which we're going to talk about that. Here it is. Many of you have been waiting for this sermon since we started the book of Revelation, possibly. The mark of the beast. Those, those famous numbers, 666. Mystique. The mystique behind those numbers, right? Have you ever been in a drive-thru, got your bill, got the, got the, the total, and it is $6.66? I did, I have. And I think I'm not going to eat this food. This Satan food, right? Mark of the beast, 666. We, we, we go crazy about this. We've been taught this from childhood. Every movie, every crazy outlandish sermon series, it's just this, this whole thing, 666. What is it? Some, some people would use an ancient practice known as gematria. And what is gematria? Well, the Greek and Hebrew alphabet, it has no numbers, but the, the letters 
do have numeric value. So the letters of Greek and Hebrew have some numeric, uh, numeric numbers assigned. So, so basically, what people would do with this idea of gematria, which is a system of taking the value of a Hebrew or Greek name and assigning the letter value to that and deciding who's the Antichrist, right? Who, who equals 666? And, and the crazy thing is that if you do this, you match the, the, the numeric value with the letters of a person's name. What was really popular was Caesar Nero. Nero, right? The, the Caesar Nero. And if you took Caesar Nero, which is in the Hebrew, it's funny how guys will use the different one because there's a slight difference in the Greek n numbers uh, total versus the Hebrew total. So whatever they needed, they used that language. But Hebrew, it came out to 666. And the truth is, if they're honest, that's if you slightly misspell Caesar. But that's okay. They, but they would use that as their argument. So Caesar Nero, for many, many centuries, has been like the number one. That's the Antichrist. Uh, the Preterist, all of that. It's, it's Caesar Nero. That's the Antichrist. Problem with that, really, is that most of John's audience didn't even read Hebrew, probably. And so that really takes away that John would actually, that Jesus would send them a message encoded with something they couldn't even read to even figure it out. But anyway... The other way people have misunderstood this thing of using that numerology idea of geometrics or geometria is one other famous guy that they said was the Antichrist because he had six letters in his first name, six letters in his middle name, and six letters in his last name was none other than Ronald Wilson Reagan because he had six letters in each name, right? So he has to be. And, but the problem with that is it's endless, Right? The possibilities are endless. However you want to finagle that around. So I don't think, I think a better approach to finding out what does 666 mean and who is the Antichrist and all that, a better approach to unpacking this number is to understand the symbolism we've already seen in the Bible using numbers, right? And we've got to start with number seven, really. What is number seven? We've seen through that already through Revelation. The number seven is perfection. It is completeness. The seven angels right? The seven spirits. Perfection. Seven is the number of perfection. Six is the number of imperfection. <laughs> seven is God's perfection. Six is man's imperfection. There's, there's your, your symbolism, if you will. J.K. Beale said this, or G.K. I, I, phonetically, it sounds like J. G.K. Beale says, Six, repeated three times, indicates the completeness of sinful incompleteness found in the beast. And I, I agree with this kind of symbology. I think this is what we're seeing here. So if you look at the, you know, an, another idea here is, is, is this. Now I'm going to use a little bit of this crazy uh, numerology. But again, so this is off the record now, right? We're going to pause the button. This is just, uh, it's like Paul said, it's, it's I, not the Lord who speaks now. So here we go. But it's just interesting. The word beast in Greek translates to 666. This is, this, is, this is what these guys, what I read from them. I didn't do this myself. I'm trusting another commentator, so bear with me. But that's interesting, right? Beast in Greek translates to 666. Jesus in Greek translates to 888. Seven is perfection. Jesus is more than perfection. He is perfection plus one. He's seven plus one. 
Satan falls far short of perfection. He's seven minus one. So I, I'm just saying that's that's if you look at numbers and want to do anything, I think that is way better use of that number stuff because what does it show us? It shows us the, the general symbology of seven and six. And six, six, six is just a, a an emphasis upon the humanity and the imperfection of humanity and the sinfulness of the beast. And so what we're taking, what about the mark? Okay, so we got the number. What does the number mean? It simply means imperfection. It simply means you're not perfect. It, we, we are falling. It, it represents sin, if you will. So what is the mark itself then? We've read, again, popular end times books describe the mark as something yet to come, right? Maybe a physical tattoo. Literally the number 666 on your forehead or hand. Uh, maybe a, techno, uh, uh, a technology to implant chips under the skin. That's been another popular one. Credit cards have been accused of that now that the chip's on the credit card. That's the mark of the beast. I'm scared of that because I use that all day today. But, um, but there's, here, here it is. Here it is. I think there's good reason to believe that this mark is, is, is referring in part to something that was common in John's own day, okay? Remember, we've, we've established this. The book of Revelation was not just written for people 2,000 years in the future at the time of its writing. It was written for, it was addressed, by the way, and delivered to seven churches of that day, right? So it had a meaning for those seven churches of that day, and yes, it can be extrapolated out to our day. We understand that. So think of this. The... the the, the, the word mark, Karagme, uh, referred to the emperor's seal on an official document. So what does that mean? The word mark refers to an official stamp of, of Caesar's household, right? Stamp of approval, if you will, from Caesar. That's what the word mark literally means. So look at this. Back in John's day, that was well known. And as I've already said, all of the local authorities and politicians, they wanted to have the stamp of approval from Rome. They wanted to have Caesar's stamp of approval. So they willingly took his mark. They willingly lived a life after his antichrist ways, if you will. They wanted that approval. They wanted that mark. Just like people today do. They live their lives showing that we have taken the mark of society. We've taken the mark of the ideology that is contrary to God's word. Soldiers also receive marks, by the way, in their hands during this time to show their allegiance to certain generals. So again, the people that are reading this letter 2,000 years ago are getting it. Oh, a mark of allegiance is all you're talking about. You're talking about being a, showing your allegiance to something that's contrary to God. Just like these soldiers mark their allegiance on their forehead or their hand for a general that they're going to show undying loyalty to. That's what you're kind of showing us. The mark on the forehead. Think about it. The, 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 the language of the forehead or the hand. What's the significance there? The mark of the forehead represents the way a person thinks. The mark on the hand represents our actions, what we do. So the mark on the hand and head ultimately, basically, are telling us this, folks. It's, the, I believe the mark of the beast involves a choice between the world and Christ. Simple as that. I mean, I know you're like, oh, come on. It's got to be more than that. Kirk Cameron told me it has to be more than that. By the way, well, no, I'm not even going to go there. But, but, <laughs> but I think if we look at the symbology of all of Revelation, it just fits with all of the Bible. Choose, it goes all the way back to Numbers. 
in the Old Testament. Choose you this day whom you will serve. It will, what that prophet was saying to Israel, when I look at your life, what mark am I going to see on you? By the way you're thinking and by the way you're living, what mark have you received? Are, is it God's? Are you thinking the way he thinks? Are, you, are your actions like his? Or are your thoughts like the ideologies of this world and of the Antichrist? Are your actions ungodly, not godly? That, that shows the mark that you've already taken. I think this is interesting because ultimately the mark of, of, the, of the beast involving that is found even back in chapter 7 of Revelation. The, the mark of the beast is simply symbolic of a mark period of what you've chosen. Because in verse 3 of chapter 7, we saw that those who chose to suffer for Christ and for his sake and his law and commands received a seal on their foreheads as the servants of God. That, that correlates beautifully with what, with what we're seeing here in chapter 13. There is a mark of those who follow the false prophet. So the mark of the beast is, this, is, is simply, you've made your choice. You're living this way. That's the mark. And Christians who are saying, no, we're going to stand for the word of God. We're going to proclaim his word. We're not going to embrace the antichrist ideologies of our day. We're going to speak against those in love, but we're going we're to speak against those. Why? Because we're marked on our hands and our forehead. I think the way God thinks. I act the way God commands me to act. And then the others in this world are showing us, no, I think the way the false prophet tells me to think. I think and act the way the flesh and the world tells me to act. That's what I think we see here. And I want to go on. I got to hurry. I know. Richard Phillips puts it this way. The point is that the beast paints Christians as being disloyal to the, to the governing regime because of our higher allegiance to Jesus. As a result, Christians are forced to, uh, to, to, the, periphery, to the, the, the periphery of public life, unable to be elected to office or operate small businesses in the ancient world where the emperor's certificate was required at the marketplace, the beast might literally reduce believers to starvation. There's a lot in that quote, but man, it's, it's, it, that's powerful. You saw it especially in Revelation already when we were in the church of Ephesus and they had the trading guilds there. And to be a part of the trading guild, you had to worship idols you had to admit that Caesar was God. Christians refused, and they were not permitted to be in the union, if you will. They couldn't work, couldn't hold a job. And the same is true with what we're seeing here. I believe this quote, we're seeing it. Are Christians not being pushed to, pushed to the periphery of society right now? We're not bowing down to the modern religion of our day. We're not repeating the mantra of their religion to accept things that God says is sin to normalize things that are abnormal in the word of God to denounce the only way of salvation to uphold the word of God as the perfect law of the universe that can be contradicted by nothing and therefore by proclaiming that and, and, and stating those things and living a life thinking that way living that way we're hated by the enemy. We're pushed to the side. And folks, it's going to happen. I mean, our big thing is who, who to vote for in an election. Folks, I'm telling you, pretty, it's just the peripheral. Christians, no matter where they're at in, in politics, they're going to be pushed to the peripheral. 
And there really will be no representative of God's love, truth, and commands in politics. I just literally believe there'll come a day when it's, it's, it's a non-sequitur. It's a, it's a non-essential. It's not even a question who you're going to vote for because Christians don't vote because there's nobody to vote for. We're living our life under the kingship of our heavenly father, faithfully waiting for his return as strangers, imagine that, pilgrims, oh, imagine that, sojourners, oh, imagine that. All of those are, are words the Bible uses to describe God's people all through the scriptures. So again, what does Revelation remind us? I think it reminds us that we've gotten too comfortable and we call this place home way too much. Not that we can't be involved, and I'm not, again, that's, that's a whole other message. We must be bold and stand and run for office if we can't, all those things. I'm just saying, look where we're at. That's what the mark, I believe, is talking about. When a society says, this is our religion, you're not part of it, you must be annihilated or done away with. Okay, but we're done right now. That's positive, but I'm going to give you more positive. Don't fear. Don't fear. I'm going to close with Revelation 2, 9 and 10. This is what Jesus said to that church. He says, I know your tribulation. So this is the good news. Everything I've said tonight is kind of like, wow, this is not good, right, Mark? It's like, man, get my gun. I'm going out there, right? You feel like, man, the world's against me. Don't fear. He knows our tribulation. He knows about this. And your poverty. He knows about that. And it's interesting, again, the Revelation, he's using these languages. The tribulation, the forceful arrest of Christians, and the poverty. You guys can't work. You can't make money because society has put you to the peripheral. I, I know, he says. I've got you. I know your tribulation and your poverty. But you are rich, he says. That's what we got to remind ourselves constantly of, folks. Our riches do not come from this world. They come from heaven. Jesus said, when his disciples says, have you eaten? He said, I have meat to eat that you don't even know of. So our hope in Christ gets us through the tribulations and the pains and the poverty. He says, do not fear. It goes on in verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. See, God knows all this. It's actually part of his will. We know this from the word of God, all of the Bible. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. That's just a time limit that God is sovereign. I'm, I've limited the time. So it'd be around 10 days, you know, whatever that time is, you'll be tested. But look at this. Be faithful unto death and I will give you a crown of life. There it is. There's our hope, our encouragement. Our call to battle, as we saw last week in, in verse 10, he said that this was a call to endurance for the saints of God. May God give us grace to be faithful, to love each other during this time, to encourage each other, then to go out and boldly proclaim to a lost and dying world that need to hear the freedom, acceptance, and identity, true identity that can only be found in Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word tonight. We, we pray that you will encourage us by it. We pray that you will use your people, your church, to encourage each other, to strengthen, to equip, to, 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 to embolden, so that we will all be faithful to stand against the false religion of our day and 
his, in its prophet, its false prophet, and that we'll be faithful to live out a life that has been marked by you. May people see the mark of Christ on us by the way we think, by the way we live for your glory until you come again. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.